0: Today's reading is from Titus, chapter 2, starting at verse 11. You can find that on page 1814 in the Church Bibles. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Thanks, Sarah. I'll stick with Sarah, I think. Um, The main story about humanity that gets told in our world uh, seems to me that story is becoming less and less compelling, less attractive, and I also think less livable. The story that is often told is that we exist purely by cosmic accidents. We simply exist. Uh, We need to make up our own moral frameworks. We decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, and after a while we kind of stop existing. Uh, We simply cease. We become forgotten and insignificant within a generation or two. In that story, uh, we're kind of like the cosmic specks of dust floating through the universe, coming from nowhere, going nowhere, with no purpose or meaning. And so the greatest philosophers of our age kind of just shrug and say, well, you only live once, have fun while you can, and maybe try and be nice. That's basically the story our world is telling. And for a while, uh, that story has looked workable uh, only, I think, because first, on average, most people have enough money uh, to have some fun most of the time. Uh, More than that, those who've been taught this uh, framework, they've also been taught a half-decent moral framework that goes with it. Uh, People have been taught to turn the other cheek, to show forgiveness, kindness, to be selfless and compassionate and humble, not realizing that that moral framework has been entirely stolen from another story, a far better story, uh, the story of the Bible. And without license, without reason, they've just plonked it onto a story that makes no sense fitting those two things together. And so people are trying to live a life that's beautiful, a life that's meaningful, but uh, when you believe deep down life is not meaningful or beautiful, it's proving to lead to despair, to hopelessness, and I also think more widespread chaos. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to Titus, and uh, we've heard how Titus was sent to the beautiful Mediterranean island of Crete, uh, and he was sent to straighten out the churches there. We've heard how Crete was kind of a new frontier for Christianity, uh, the gospel had taken roots in the lives of small groups of people all around the islands. Uh, but the culture and the stories that were believed on the island about what humanity is and what we're here for, that is, the moral framework of the Cretans, was far from godly. It was messed up, actually. Uh, those who have been here the last few weeks or have been catching up online will be familiar with by now uh, with a verse I've been pointing us to a few times. This is chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, just to give you a bit of a sense of what Crete was like. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds his own assessment, this saying is true. Uh, It's full on, isn't it? And whatever people believed on Crete about the world, about the purpose of their lives, uh, and what morality is, uh, the outcome, how they lived, is I think something we can all recognise. Basically, eat, drink, look after yourselves, because tomorrow you die. And so it's in this setting that Titus is to urge the Christians on Crete to be very different, to live very different lives, as we saw last week, to be self-controlled, to be godly, to be kind. How is Titus going to do that? Uh, What we see, Titus doesn't set out to yell at them. He's not trying to scare them into changing their behaviour with sort of fire and brimstone. Uh, Titus isn't trying to manipulate them, using guilt to change the behaviour of Christians He's not bribing them. He's not offering extra blessings from God if you behave in such and such a way. Uh, that's not only because none of those things work, guilt, um, manipulation, all those things do not work uh, because we can all change our behavior in a short term, can't we? We can change our behavior uh, when we're faced with a carrot or a stick, but uh, what really needs to change is not our behavior, it's, it's us. At a heart level, we need to change who we are. We need to change what we love, what we care about. It's from there, from within, that our, change, our behaviour changes. It's from the inside out. And so Paul instructs Titus to do that, to head there, talk about the inside, to keep telling the most profound story about who we really are and why we're really here. Because when we grasp that story, we understand those things, then we can change from the inside out. Uh, last week, we looked at the first 10 verses of chapter 2, uh, and we saw what kind of behaviour and what sort of character we are to have as we follow Jesus. At the end of verse 10... Uh, if you're following along, chapter 10, sorry, chapter 2, verse 10, at the very end, Paul tells us why it matters so much that Christians live differently. It really matters. After describing how our lives are to be, at the end of verse 10, we see, so that in every way they, Christians, will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Um, that word there, attractive, it's from, the same, uh, it's from the same Greek word that we get the word cosmetic from, cosmosis. Uh, cosmetic, attractive, to be beautiful, uh, to live beautiful lives. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because we're living out what we know to be true of God. We are living out what we know to be true of his grace. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, We have in Adelaide, I think, a lot in common with those first Christians on Crete. Uh, They, of course, lived in a culture completely untouched at that point by the gospel. They were a pre-Christian culture. Uh, we live in what is increasingly described as a post-Christian age. I think we're increasingly seeing our culture losing those sorts of Christian values that for so long have been taken for granted. And so as Christians are living beautiful lives, uh, consistent with the most beautiful story ever told, our lives and our Christian communities, I think, uh, will be shining more and more brightly as the years go, for, go on, kind of like that lighthouse in a storm. And so in these f- just a few verses we're looking at today, Paul tells us what's going to drive us along, uh, what's going to really change us and, and transform us. Uh, we won't be living beautiful lives, driven along by fear or guilt or just determination. Instead, in quite astounding ways, Paul says, grace teaches us. Grace trains us to live beautiful lives. So these short verses we're looking at today, we're seeing really how to live in a school of grace. The school of grace that teaches us our story, our history, to help us know who we are and why we're living. And this school of grace is how God changes us from the inside out. See, we know too well um, how often uh, we don't live like verses 1 to 10 describe. If you are here last week as we were talking about all kinds of things uh, that God is uh, asking of us in our lives, we realise we don't do that very well. But get to verse 11 you realise it is possible. It's possible to change. It's possible to grow, to live more beautifully than I currently am. And verse 11 onwards, it, make, it unpacks why it's possible, why we have confidence this can happen. Verse 11, 4. Uh, 4, that's everything in verses 1 to 10. 4, everything um, can be done because the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. What God's grace is about is salvation, Uh, It's salvation not just for the Jews, not just for good people. Uh, It's offered to all people. And grace, realize here, it's not just a nice feeling from God. It's not a theory or just his kind of personality. Um, The grace of God has appeared. It's appeared. Paul's talking about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is God's grace to us. In his life, in his ministry, in his death, his resurrection, you sum it all up that Jesus is God's grace and he has appeared. Grace is not theoretical. It's not just a doctrine. It's personal. It's Jesus. And Jesus has appeared and he showed us the shape and the size of God's grace and what's on offer to us. If you skip down to verse 14, we could have unpacked here like how Paul tells the story of grace. He's telling us our history, getting us to look back, understand who we are, where we've come from, because of God's grace. Um. Verse 14 is Jesus Christ, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Now, you've all redeemed things from time to time, haven't you? Um, Just a few weeks ago, Crean and I had a voucher for a restaurant that had been sitting on my desk for for months and months. We finally redeemed it. We went to a restaurant, gave them the voucher, and they gave us food. It was good. We have all redeemed things before. We're sort of familiar, roughly, with that sort of exchange, uh, more often, though, when we're talking about redeeming something, it's usually in a, in a bad situation, and we want to fix or save something, so we redeem it. So you might be involved in redeeming natural habitat after a bushfire goes through. Uh, some people are very familiar with having to redeem your reputation on the sports field for you know turning the ball over. Uh, we're all familiar, I'm sure, with having to redeem ourselves in a relationship after we've done something wrong, something terrible even. See, the word redeemed usually is describing being pulled out of a bad situation, being rescued or returning back into a safe and good place. And in the Bible, that's exactly what it means. Uh, for instance, that's how God describes how he redeems Israel from slavery, from a yeah, terrible situation in Egypt. And just like with Israel, uh, there are all sorts of things we can't redeem ourselves from. Here in verse 14, notice what we are redeemed from. Christ redeemed us from all wickedness. Now, the key to understanding that is not not that he's uh, saying he's just stopped us from doing bad things. That's not really the idea here. It's more that Jesus has rescued us, he's saved us from basically a world of wickedness. Think about a domain or or a realm where God's rule is ignored, where God is ignored or even hated. It's it's a place, a domain, a realm of wickedness, or other translations have it, lawlessness. It's not a place of God's rule, it's a place of Satan's rule. And so it's a place where those there are destined for God's judgment and separation from him. And that, of course, would include us if we were to stay there in that place of wickedness. That's true no matter how good or how moral our lives have been. Uh, That is, every one of us. Uh, Christians don't get to look around and say, well, everyone else is wicked and I'm not. Uh, The idea is we're, we're all caught up in this domain of wickedness, rejecting God's rule in our life, and we cannot redeem ourselves from that wickedness. No amount of trying or uh, discipline will get us out. Which means, of course, it is a desperate situation to be in. And God did not need to redeem us either. We sometimes take for granted, yeah, of course, God saved me, it's his job. But no, no, God didn't need to do that. God didn't need to redeem us, but by his grace, he did. And did you notice how God uh, redeemed us in Christ? At the start of verse 14, we see he gave himself for us. Gave himself for us. Uh, Paul's talking about Jesus being a substitute, someone stepping in to our place, uh, sort of to pay for our deliverance uh, out of the realm of weakness and into safety. Jesus steps in for us. Now, if you've been following the news at all, uh, you might know uh, who this is. There's a photo here of Sam Bankman Freed. Um, he was once the king of cryptocurrencies. He'd raked up billions of dollars uh, by his late 20s. Um, yes, the world at his fingertips. A couple of weeks ago, been following the news, Sam Bankman-Fried was found overwhelmingly guilty for extraordinary financial crimes, uh, basically running the greatest Ponzi scheme the world has ever seen. Uh, quite impressive at one level, uh, deeply immoral and illegal. Now, Sam is due to be sentenced. He's been uh, found guilty. He's due to be sentenced in March, uh, I think, or some time around there. And he's likely to spend many decades in jail. Can you imagine if um, Sam had a friend or a brother or someone that said, just after he's sentenced to many decades in jail, said, actually, Sam, I'm going to step in and do that for you. I'll do the time in jail for you, stepping into his place. Wouldn't that be an incredible act of love and and sacrifice to redeem Sam out of jail and someone else stepping into his place? Now, that'd be great, but of course it'd make a mockery of the law, wouldn't it? That's not legal. Uh, I mean, he did the crime, he should do the time. That's how this works. Jesus, though, Jesus is fully human, and he's always lived under God's rule, perfectly. Jesus is the perfect and suitable representative. He does represent us perfectly. Uh, what's more than that, Jesus is also fully God. So he can step in, not just for one human in exchange, but for all humanity, for all of us. Have a look again, actually, at the end of verse 13. There's a, a, yeah, a pretty important thing to draw your attention to. And the end of verse 13, we're told about the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's one of the clearest spots in the Bible that describes Jesus as our God and Saviour. Sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, the Bible doesn't really say Jesus is God. Just take them to Titus chapter 2. There's other places you could take them, but that's a shortcut in a very long and frustrating conversation. Being fully God makes Jesus' sacrifice infinitely valuable, doesn't it? So Jesus really is the perfect substitute to redeem us. So, this is who we are. Because of God's grace, we are redeemed from all wickedness, that's our history. That's now our identity. We are redeemed people, but that's not all. He has saved us from something. He saved us from that realm of wickedness, but he saved us for a purpose. Read, uh, read on verse 14 again. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. By his blood on the cross, Jesus has purified us. He's made us clean. He's washed us. He's washed us pure from everything. If we've turned to him and trusted him for our forgiveness, everything. If we have repented, if we ask forgiveness from Jesus, we are pure. Isn't that extraordinary? Completely pure. Not because of what we do, not because of how good we are. Our Purity is actually based on what he has done. He has washed us pure and clean in his sight. And we realize that Jesus hasn't just washed us and uh, redeemed us uh, to his own sake, just to sit around and now sort of, you know, now what? Uh, we are to be his very own, eager to do what is good. He's saved us and given us purpose. Uh, when I was younger, um, one of my brothers had a friend who rolled his car. Um, he was fine, uh, but the car wasn't. Uh, the roof was kind of pancaked in as completely uh, yeah, undriveable. Uh, it was actually amazing. My, friend's, uh, my, yeah, my brother's friend was okay. Uh, the car was destined for the scrap heap until my dad, who is uh, very handy and loves a good project, he redeemed that car. Uh, he yeah, took it on and uh, he chopped the roof off and got a new roof, painstakingly welded it, painted it, uh, lovingly brought the car back to life. Um, he redeemed the car, not just to have it sit in the shed doing nothing, he redeemed the car and we put it to very good use. It was the car I actually learned to drive in. Uh, it was redeemed for a purpose. We are redeemed with a purpose not just to sit around in the shed until we see Jesus, but to get on with doing what is good. That is, to get on with living godly lives, to live beautiful lives. To live beautiful lives, we need to know who we are. We need to know that beautiful story, that, that beautiful history that looks back, telling us, informing us who we really are. We are redeemed, we are purified, and we belong to Jesus now. We are his precious possession. Isn't that great? Like, when it describes us as a people of his very own, we are his precious people. And I think this is critical. If you've ever struggled with feelings of self-worth or significance or value, Jesus redeemed us to be his own. It tells you how precious we are in his eyes, every single one of us. This gives us a whole new identity and so a whole new purpose. And knowing the history of the grace of God means we know who we are. And this grace, this grace that we know trains us and it teaches us. It sort of pushes along. Uh, Grace pushes us and teaches us and trains us to grow and to change. Have a look back at verse 12. Grace, it, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it does, doesn't it? Grace does teach us to change. There's nothing more powerful than shaping our character and our lives and our behaviour being gripped by grace, redeemed at extraordinary cost, and counted as His precious people, entirely by grace. Because of who we are, we're pushed on, eager to do what is good, and increasingly interested less and less in sort of the things of this world—ungodliness and worldly passions. But that's not all that's happening. Our history pushes us forward to live beautifully, and we know that the future also pulls us forward. we got the past pushing us and the future pulling us. Uh, it's a bit like this picture. Um, I'm not sure uh, if it'll come up. Here we go. There we go. Um, I'm not sure whether that's a, a llama or an alpaca. Someone might be able to help me there. That's not the point. Uh, the idea is our history pushes us along, helping us grow and be transformed, and our future pulls us along as well, growing us, transforming us. Have a look at uh, verse 12. It's this as we live in the present age. Uh, The grace of God in the past moves us and the future pulls us towards godly lives as we wait now. Uh, I think we're all familiar with the way that uh, a certain future changes our present landscape. Like we all know Christmas is coming, so we're rushing around madly, uh, stressing out. Uh, For the last few weeks, I've seen Matt Lehman uh, inching towards a very well-earned break as uh, three months of long service leave has got closer and closer. He's finally on it. Uh, For a range of reasons, the last few weeks, Matt ended up working some gigantic weeks, even by his standard. Uh, It wasn't sustainable, but what kept him going was that long service leave was only a few days away, and he got there. See, knowing a certain future really does change our present. Have a look again from verse 12. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait. For the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So verse 11, grace appeared once in Jesus, and verse 13, we wait for the next appearance of Jesus. We're sandwiched between the two most important uh, moments in history, the appearances first of Jesus and his second coming. One pushes us forward, the other pulls us, invites us on into the future, encouraging us, training us to live beautifully, godly lives now. Now what exactly is it we're waiting for? Uh, we're waiting for Jesus to appear, but it's not like he's just going to rock up and give us a high five. Like, what is, what is the thing we're looking forward to? Uh, Paul here calls it the blessed hope, the blessed hope. Uh, that is, the best of hopes, the hope beyond all hopes. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. There is nothing better to hope for. Um, every human heart is longing for glory. Every human heart longs for glory. And what is glory? Uh, glory is uh, something like beauty, or value, or something that captivates us, or um, something, something more than that, I suppose. Glory is what delights, it's what satisfies, it's uh, what overwhelms and makes us ecstatic with joy. And so everyone does spend their lives trying to find and enjoy glory. Now for some, that's looking to creation to find glory there. Others look to the beauty of art or literature or music, or others to find delight in being praised and honoured by others. There's glory all around us, and we seek it. And we seek it, I think, because God has made us to seek his glory and to be satisfied entirely when we behold him and his glory for eternity. So when the glory of God appears, all evil will be judged. All wrongs will be made right. Every longing of our heart fulfilled and every wound healed. It will be magnificent. It will be glorious. So much so it will make even the greatest pleasures of the world now look pretty lame, pretty boring in comparison as the trials and challenges of now fade away, and we get to behold true unhidden glory, divine majesty, forever. This is what we're waiting for. Uh, It's while we're here now, Christ has made us his very own, so we can enjoy him and enjoy his glory forever. And knowing that now, uh, we know that our hunger for glory will one day be fulfilled properly, as it should be fulfilled on that day. It helps us to not seek those substitutes for glory now, Uh, Grace teaches that those things, uh, the the praise of others or ego trips or just cheap thrills, seeking glory that way, it doesn't satisfy. Grace teaches us to keep looking forward to what truly satisfies, which is the glory of God. Now, this often drifts from our minds, doesn't it? The the second coming of Jesus. Uh, It's not always front and center, uh, this glorious future. And to be honest, it can be hard. Uh, It can be hard believing it is actually coming. Uh, It's been a long time and we sort of grow impatient Ever since Titus was preaching on Crete, uh, people have been mocking Christians as we wait for Jesus return. And it might seem foolish from the outside at first. But you see what Paul does here? He ties together very tightly these two appearances of Jesus. Because because of the past, the future is guaranteed. Because Jesus has defeated death, um, his resurrection is no party trick. He's defeated death. It's of cosmic significance. So, as we talk about Jesus living now, we are confident of the resurrection. Uh, Sorry, if we're talking about Jesus now, it's because we're confident of his resurrection, and we have every good reason to be confident that Jesus rose from the dead. And then we should be just as confident that he will come again uh, on that day. So, we really do stand between the two most important moments in history. Both past and our future need to be in view. Uh, as we have the grace of God transforming and training us to live beautiful lives that are self-right, upright, uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly. There are Christians, though, who I think uh, can get a bit suspicious when grace is put front and centre. Sometimes that's fair enough, actually, because, after all, grace can be treated as something cheap. Uh, It's kind of like a ticket to do what we want because God will forgive us anyway is often how grace is presented or perhaps grace is presented in a way that makes it sound like, oh, God, just relaxed. He doesn't care about our godliness that much. Uh, but that's not grace, is it? Grace is not cheap. Christ gave himself. And grace really is the best teacher. Can you remember uh, when you were first hit by how big and expensive and how wonderful God's grace to you is? Can you remember that moment, just being struck by God's grace? Or perhaps um, you can remember key moments, like myself, I can't remember that first time, but moments where you might have been unsettled or disturbed or just conscious of the, own, the weight of your own sin and your failing. But then the grace of God came and refreshed you and comforted you. Or when you were wandering astray, perhaps heading in a bad direction in a dark place, and God gently restored you and gave you hope again. Grace really is a good teacher because it is the heart of who God is and what he's like. And when we're gripped by his grace, it's not like we feel like, oh, I guess I better try a bit harder and pull my socks up. When we're gripped by grace, we are taught to say no, just automatically almost as we are gripped by grace, we're eager to do what is good and eager to say no to what's not. See, grace teaches us so well. It's not a matter of willpower or setting targets for growth or just even having guilt to motivate change. That's not it. I've actually already seen in our series in Titus the damage that happens when people try and add human commands to shape behavior, to be more godly. Uh, we saw that at the end of chapter one. It just doesn't work. It's disastrous. So another way to think about this is that grace is what replaces our natural default love for sin. Grace is what replaces our natural or default love for sin. Grace kind of comes in and drives out the other stuff in our hearts that no amount of willpower or determination can. Uh, I'm not a gardener, I don't really know if this is true, but I've, uh, I've read, I've heard it said, apparently there's a, a kind of oak tree called the live oak. Uh, there's a picture of it here. Uh, when, li- when the leaves of this oak tree die off for winter, the leaves don't drop off straight away, they die, but they stay on the tree. And the cold comes, the wind comes, they still don't drop off. Uh, what caused them to drop off is springtime, when new leaves sort of shoot from underneath, pushing the old leaves out. It's the same thing with grace. Grace. Grace trains us, how we act, how we live, by changing us from the inside out. It pushes out um, all those things we would otherwise be saying yes to. To the outside behaviour, it lines up more and more to who we are in Christ. Just a quick something, I suppose, for those who are parents here. Uh, Can I encourage you to keep this central in raising kids? Uh, It's hard, isn't it, working out what boundaries to set and what kind of clarity is needed about behaviour. We do need to care about behaviour. Those things are important as we train and raise kids. And if you haven't yet watched the video of Paul and Sue Harrington on, on parenting, which was a few weeks back, um, it was all about having grace at the centre of our parenting. Quick side note as a confession, I haven't watched it yet, Karina has, but overdue to, to chat about it more, but I uh, hear it's excellent. If you have missed it, if you're like me, now's a good time to get back and watch it. The point is, as much as we care about our children's behaviour, we have to care far more about them understanding Grace. Which, of course, means if we're focusing only on behavior and injustice and making sure everything's punished accordingly and proportionately, if we think our rules and regulations will change character and shape the character, we're not just risking, we're actually undercutting uh, what we teach them about grace. If our parenting doesn't also involve grace and center around that. So, of course, we need to model that. We need to know God's grace ourselves and keep modeling it to our kids and extend grace to them as well. For everyone, we do need to keep making sure that we are lifelong students in the School of Grace. We are continually looking back to God's grace to us in Christ and continue looking forward to the glory of Christ. That's how God teaches us, how he trains us to grow, and how to live beautiful lives that are pleasing to him, and that makes the teaching about Jesus attractive to the world around us in a post-Christian world. Verse 15, you'll see, uh, These then are the things you should teach. It's bread and butter, central. So, encourage and rebuke with all authority because God's grace transforming us uh, to live godly, attractive lives, it matters too much, doesn't it, for Titus to kind of just, as a teacher of God's word, make just nice suggestions. That's true for anyone preaching or teaching God's word. We must preach grace, teach grace. End of verse 15. Do not let anyone despise you. So, there you go. If you're despising me, stop it, I guess. Um, Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your grace to us. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave yourself for us, that you have redeemed us from wickedness. You've purified us, making us your very own. Please help us to keep being gripped by your grace, knowing exactly who we are. Please help us keep looking forward, uh, knowing why we're here. Help us to anticipate uh, that enjoyment of your glory for all eternity. Please help us just walk each day with those two points of history firmly fixed in our minds and our hearts, the past and future both shaping us, training us to say no to things of this world. So teachers and trainers, we pray, to be self-controlled, upright and godly, making your grace beautiful and attractive to the world around us. Amen.